Alright, everybody, welcome. This is episode 24 of Stone and Clay. Um, episode 24, shout out Kobe Bryant. Kind of a special number. Um, I'm here with a guest. His name is Alex Tamang. Did I say it right? Tamang, yeah. Tamang. Um, he's half Nepali. Is that how you say it too? Yeah, it's a, it's like a debate. Because I've heard ne- I've heard Nepalese. Yeah, I've heard Nepalese as well too from different Nepali people. Oh really? So I hear Nepali from Nepali people, and I see Nepalese. From Which me. one is more common, you think, or more accurate? Because I you always say Nepali. Yeah, I think the official. If we're gonna get real technical, I think the official term is Nepali for the language mm-hmm. and Nepalese for the people. Okay. So okay. I might have been saying it wrong. We'll fact wrong. check it after yeah. the episode. Google um, that. Well, that's our episode. We just wanted to talk about, um, you know. There, there you have it, folks. So languages, and I think those are called uh, endonyms. Um, all right, Alex, tell us uh, tell us about how, how we met. Tell our love story. Oh, it is romantic beyond belief. So mm-hmm. I have this buddy of mine. He's a good old... Six foot one, 225 pounds, could have beat me up my entire life growing up as a kid. Yeah. We're going back. We're going okay, back. Okay, okay. So he's, uh, I've known him since I was five years old. He was the uh, show off of the entire school. Kid, mm-hmm. The kid was five years old. He could ride bikes with no hands. He was doing backflips. He was just crazy athletic. Yeah. And so I actually hated him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and I grew up in the same ward. I was actually buddies with another guy. Where, where are you from again? Alpine, Utah. Okay, yeah. so kind of a kind of a hodgepodge of uh, rich people and richer, snootier people. Yeah, just the closer you get to the mountains, they just <laughs> add a zero to that income. Okay. So gotcha. That's what I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So blessed, super blessed to grow up in that area. Mm-hmm. It was a dream. It's an oasis, and I'll always be grateful for the privileges and blessings that my father gave to me because again he's from Nepal right he wasn't given any of that to him right 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 so super grateful anyway this this kid that I'm talking about turned out to be my best friend later on um his name is Logan and he and I like to play he and I would play spike ball every once in a while because I actually when I came back from a mission in 2015 December 2015 Mm -hmm. uh he uh, no, he he was on a mission. I came back and I saw Spikeball for the first time. I just yeah. drove past the and park. And just real quick, not to interrupt you, but this episode is not entirely about Spikeball, so please don't tune out right <laughs> now. I know some people are like, listen, I don't care. We get it. <laughs> Taylor, you play Spikeball. I don't, it's dumb, whatever. We'll talk about other stuff. Yeah, Con- this, continue. This, this is our romance story. So. Right, right. And Logan Ketch, I don't know if they can hear me very well. I don't know. If yeah, they, be... you're good. Okay, cool. So, I uh, get back from a mission. I see people playing spike ball. I'm like, sweet, gayest thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Not interested. Yeah. But then he's like, hey, let's play some time. And got introduced, fell in love. McKay Hooker actually was like, hey, you should like actually try it out. But then Logan, the guy that helped you move the other day, mm-hmm. he decided to sign us up. And this happened to be a tournament that you were hosting. And uh, I saw your hair and I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm losing my hair. Okay. And so actually, there's a a little trigger. Yeah. yeah. So actually, when I asked for your Venmo to pay for it, I was just hitting on you. Sure. So 
I was like, you gotta go, gotta know this guy's name. Yeah. So we met there, but you wouldn't remember me because I wasn't half as beautiful as I am now. Right. So. Kind of a dark yeah. period yeah. for you. I can't, I can't blame you for not remembering me, but yeah. that was in 2018. Uh-huh. But then, uh, fast forward, two year relationship just ended for me. I'm depressed out of my mind. I remember that, like spike ball, contacted someone and said, "Hey, spike ball still happening?" They're like, "Yep, every Tuesday." So, pause you. Because I feel like it's probably a little more nuanced than that. You're depressed, you're in a bad spot, and you don't just remember you like spike ball. What, what kind of triggered that moment? Oh, um, so I actually grew up doing martial arts. Yeah. That was my niche. That's uh-huh. like, everyone has like one thing they're good at, that was mine. And, right. uh, and for people who aren't watching the video, you're a lanky yes. brother. Yeah. You're 6'4". Buck 50. Buck 50, soaking wet. <laughs> yeah. Um, my kind of guy. Okay. Yep. So that's what I grew up doing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my way of coping with life is to be physically active. Yeah. Got it from my father. If he misses one day of working out, you do not want to be in his in his path. He's yeah, just yeah. a monster. And so same kind of thing going on with me. I'm like, okay, I've got nothing going for me. Let's just go back to something I love. Looked online to see what studio, like dojos, studios, mm-hmm. gyms were open, and yeah. all of them were like 150 to 170 bucks a month. So I was like, see right. ya. Um, and was this kind of in the middle of the COVID crisis? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so that's when I was thinking, I was like, okay, what else? What are other things I like to do? And mm-hmm. so I was thinking basketball. I never really played basketball that much, and I just feel like that whole area is so diluted with huge athletes, and I was right. just like, I'm just never going to fit in. So yeah. I thought of spike ball, and so that's why. I forgot who I contacted. I think it was McKay Hooker. Okay, yeah. I texted him. He said, yeah, they're still playing every Tuesday. So I showed up. He wasn't there. Justin Justin Ellingford. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Cathedral. By the way, great brand. If you don't know it, check it out by cathedral.com. It's got some of the sickest stuff. I've never supported a local business more than this business. So. That's true. Me too. It's like half of my wardrobe, honestly. Anyway, he took me in his wing and he's like, hey, I understand, brother. Come play. I know you're a noob. And, uh, then he introduced me to you, and uh, and then we just fell in love. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm trying to think the first day, because, yeah, we met a few years ago, but I'm trying to think of the first day you came out, and I remember, like, playing with you. It was pro- was it that day you are talking about? Probably not. I don't think I actually got in, like, the nerve to stand in front of you until a few well, weeks later. I, but I remember, I remember seeing, you know, some new tall lefty, right? So, so you a just uni- a unicorn, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, you, you you stuck out, and being a lefty in spike ball, it's kind of like in baseball. It's it's just pretty advantageous for yep. a handful of reasons. But um, anyways, yeah, we became kind of spike homies, and then we realized we were kind of uh, simpatico in other ways, um, in the ways we think, the things we're passionate about. So, uh, so yeah, we're um. We're in a budding relationship. It's new. It's very fragile. Um, and, you know, we're here expressing it to the world. But um, so... Um, tune in. <laughs> yeah, so tune in. So tell me, how, do you feel like you were pre- pretty instantly, like, able to kind of get out of that funk, that depression, just by having, you know, a weekly activity, a, a kind of a new passion? Or was it just kind of a, a way to mask your feelings for a couple hours a week? Or what was what was that process? Um, 
I, I think this is a great question because I, so my passion outside of being physically active is psychology. Yeah. Anything about the mind. And uh, I knew that I needed some type of outlet. I needed something to do because I didn't just want to sit in my bed, watch anime for mm. 12 hours a day. And, right. You know. Are you capable of that? Can I you? am. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that's something you guys will find out about me is I can be an ultimate loser. So any, anyone, anyone out there, if, you, uh, if you're on the same lo- road, I'll he's, be happy to talk hours on any anime show. So Right, he's single. Yeah, so anyway, uh, I realized that spike ball was like, going to help me you know, stay distracted. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what really happened was I didn't realize how much I loved spike ball until I started hanging out with you guys. Mm-hmm. And so from it being a distraction to changing into, hey, I want to become a different person. That's the focus. That's what happened. That was the shift that happened from the first couple of times I played to realizing I love this. Mm-hmm. But now, too, I've always, again, gangly guy. If you're watching the video, you can see my arms are, I literally have a six foot eight wingspan. Yeah. And I'm six foot four. Yeah. And so I've never had good command of my body naturally. Mm-hmm. Just I'm the most uncoordinated kid you'd ever meet. Right. Ask anyone in my family. They'd say, I'd be walking. And then next thing you know, I'm just straight on my flat on my face. I hear a big thud, boom. Right. So that was just. I mean, case in point, you hurt your wrist the other day. You fell on running on concrete and plates. (laughs) Exactly. I'm (laughs) I'm not an athlete. I'm just not. And so I had to. So realizing how much I love spike ball, I was like, okay, I can prove myself again that anything that you put your mind to, right, Mm -hmm. psychology you can become great at. And so yeah. that's how it was with martial arts. When I started martial arts at age 11, I was the worst, far none. Mm-hmm. Just like, just look at my body and people would give me that. They would be like, oh, you're a martial artist? Dude, you look like a twig that I could break in half in two seconds. Yeah. That's always the vibe I'd get from not only my fellow martial art peers, but just people at school, yeah. people at me on the streets. And so... What did you get into? Like, So I first started in karate. Uh-huh. So... I'm officially right now a third degree black belt in karate. Okay. Okay. How many degrees are there? I, I always hear people flex about their degrees. How yeah. many, what's the highest, highest you can get? Depends on the system. Okay. So this system is seventh. Okay. That's the highest, the grandmaster. He's okay. a seventh degree black belt. And is that kind of the main system or no. is it? So just like, um, just think about it as like a tribes. Okay. You have different tribes and um, they might have their chief and... Some will qualify their chief for having a certain skill set mm-hmm. or being the oldest. So it's just there is no fundamental. Oh, this is. So if you're talking to like an Olympic karate dude, what tribe does he prescribe? Yeah, to? just depends. Just on depends. What dojo he grew up in? Okay. Right? So there is no official. Okay, so sometimes measurement. It's not BS if you hear someone say like I'm a twelfth degree black belt because yeah. you're like okay I don't know your dojo exactly okay gotcha. that's exactly right so okay. it could either mean he's a freaking boss mm-hmm. or they have no no integrity to their right. system <laughs> so, so are there people out there that have black belts that are really not very proficient fighters absolutely okay absolutely. they just either have an easier system to get through or um I don't know they just Paid their dues. Yeah. So most of the time it's the system. Yeah. Most of, if you can, if you find someone who says they're a black belt and they're just rubbish, they're just not good at all. It's the system. Mm-hmm. Most likely. Okay. If anything, they could be a black belt just because of the merit, right? And the discipline that they, 
that they achieved through yeah. many years. Mm-hmm. And despite all that discipline and, and merit that they've warranted, their athleticism and their technique and their ability to protect and defend yeah. could still be really bad. So do you, when you're graduating from belt to belt to belt, do you need to like spar people or do you just need to like show that you can do fancy kicks and yeah. break wood and stuff? So in my system, we had to do when you're, when you're going up till about blue belt. Mm-hmm. So it would go white belt, yellow belt, gold belt, green belt, purple, blue, red, red, brown, brown, black, Oreo, and then black belt. Holy cow. That was the, okay. that was the, that was the system, right? And so until about red belt, it's just all katas, mm-hmm. technique, forms. I don't know if you, anyone's seen like a karate movie where they're just like doing these moves by themselves and it looks kind of weird. It looks yeah. like they're dancing. Yeah, yeah. Those are called katas, right? Okay. And then they have to master those katas to a certain form that show a command of their body, the purpose of the movement, strong, mm-hmm. and just and it has to look beautiful like dancers, right? right, right. Dancers, they, they have to look good. And so, and then when you get to red belt, that's when you start, they would just call it application, when you start sparring, when mm-hmm. you start using uh, either, either if it's, uh, what do you call it? Well, I'm drawing on a blank. Point, point, point sparring. Mm-hmm. So it could either be point sparring or actual combat, right? And so they would start applying point sparring from red belt to higher. Once you get to black belt, it's combat. Okay. If you can defend yourself successfully, then you're good to go. And so when I got my black belt, I had to go to Houston, Texas, because that's where headquarters was. Okay. And it was a uh, two-day, eight-hour each-day test. Oh, wow. So they went from everything that you learned from a white belt to a black belt. So the first day, you're doing form, katas. Uh, every single technique, individual technique outside of the kata. So we, I probably did a thousand kicks that day just yeah. to show them that I can do all these kicks in perfectly a thousand times without tiring, all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then the next day we have uh, sparrings, point sparring to see how we are on speed. But then next thing, the last thing that we had to do is we actually had to fight one of the uh, masters on the board. Mm-hmm. And if we can hold our own, they they would redeem they would deem ourselves worthy of a ranking and so that's what happened to me when I got my black belt I actually blacked out twice <laughs> um, that's and what if, they call it black belt <laughs> and if you uh, and if you do black out black out you actually don't they'll kick you out oh because really because you're not physically strong enough to yeah but luckily when I blacked out I w- my body was still moving but my mind was just I was gone. <laughs> okay. So it is, I, they say, they, they don't know how long I blacked out for, but I just remember telling my family, I was like, I blacked out. They're like, well, you were still doing what you had to do okay. mid-punch. <laughs> so I was like, okay, cool. So I, I got lucky. But um, so that's what we had to do. I, uh, the guy that I had to fight, they were picking on me because I'm the skinny guy. They picked a guy named Eric Loveless, who was actually three-time world cha- three-time world champion kickboxer okay on top of his karate right mm-hmm. and uh he was 325 pounds six foot six just <laughs> monster yeah. and so they had me had me fight that guy i got ripped apart right ripped apart but uh i just kept on getting up mm-hmm. and so because i kept on getting up they mm-hmm. were teasing me and all that stuff but good memories yeah so. that's wild so why did you wait first of all i need to know do you feel confident, like, if there was an altercation in the street that you could kind of take most people? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, 
because I always wonder these people that are like trained in martial arts versus like street fighters, yep. right? These dudes that just get in fights all, all the time. Yeah. Because you probably haven't been in many like actual fights outside of the like com- competitive stage, right? Yeah. Whole different world. Um, but you know, you know how to like combat and counter counter everything. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So. That's a great question because most people who do karate and they spar, it's you take a guy who's learning how to point spar. Let's say mm-hmm. it's point sparring. So if I can like jab you in the face or kick you in the stomach, I get a point. Mm-hmm. Break, restart. That is nothing like the real world. Sure. Real world, on average, you have seven seconds be- before someone's killed, seriously injured, or incapacitated. Right. Because they're just coming at you, swinging, yeah. swinging, swinging. There's so much rage, adrenaline. Yeah. The intent, right, is to kill. Right. And so that's from police reports, at least from 2016, where mm-hmm. on average, the longest altercation lasted seven seconds. So any martial art movie you've seen where they're having these crazy combat scenes, <laughs> yeah. rubbish. It's, sure. It's not realistic. Yeah. It's super fun, but it's not real. So I was fortunate enough to be assigned to teach the self-defense curriculum as I was growing up okay. in martial arts. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn the awful reality of what it's like to be in an altercation in real life when someone's either trying to rob you, mm-hmm. kidnap you, rape you, or kill you. Right. And uh, I had taught that for two years. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is it's not beautiful. Right. Anything you think about self-defense, it's, it's just not pretty. Right. The number one uh, movement that I remember I had to teach was reported from U.S. police officers that they gave us their information saying that there was a popular, that the villains, right, were getting more efficient and effective at doing what they did. Mm. And they called it the hook and ladder. And what these guys, the rapists were doing is they would approach women from behind, if it's either at a park, right, if they're watching their kids or they're just on the street or in an alley or going on the run, they would approach these women from behind, and you won't be able to see the move that I'm doing, but just imagine a guy coming up, wrapping his arm around the woman's neck, grabbing the hair, and throwing them to the ground as hard as they can, Yeah. right? So this the woman's going backwards, held by the neck, held by the hair, being thrown down to attempt to either knock out or discombobulate the woman. Right. Because now, either if she's knocked out or not, they can just drag her all the way to the location that they need to be. Yeah, yeah. Now, put yourself in your shoes. If and no amount of pepper spray in your purse is going to yeah. help. And it takes three seconds for that all that to happen. Right. right. And so, teaching that is a nightmare because people would come like, I'm here to learn self-defense, and I'd have people quit on me all the time because there's, they, would, they would be disheartened yeah. and realize, if this happens to me, I'm dead. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And so I I have confidence um, when it comes to street altercations because not only did I do all the cool, like, traditional karate stuff, I grew up doing, martial like, every other martial arts as well as jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, Taekwondo, mm-hmm. Judo. Did you ever do any boxing? Boxing, yeah. absolutely, kickboxing. So I, I, I had... Lots of time where I was in front of another man bigger than me, and this guy was trying to punch me, knock me out all the time. So that's something I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Not like my cousins, who are actually one FC uh, professional fighters. In so the one the UFC is the biggest one in the yeah. US. One FC is the biggest one in Asia. It's okay. actually the biggest fighting organization in the world. Oh wow! Because it's Asia. Yeah. So they're my two cousins actually fight for one FC, and they're animals. Right. They would destroy me. Yeah. Right. But for me. For someone who's just on the street, chances are they're not going to be a... Trained fighter. Yeah, trained fighter, right? right? 
So I've had confidence in, in that aspect, but as well as I've actually, uh, I've put myself in a situation to protect other people in Salt Lake City multiple times. So mm -hmm. after, uh, in Thailand, I did that a lot, but also in Salt Lake City, there was lots of drunk guys at night who were mm -hmm. beating up on other dudes, yeah. and I always interfered, and it, it all goes slow motion for me. Right, because so, you're trained. Yeah, and right. so when people were like, oh, you want to fight me? And they're like, I bet you won't. It's like... I will. I'm, I'm never going to unless I have to. So right. if you throw the first punch, I'll do what I have to. Right, but you're going to get hurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I have full confidence. Of course, um, I can be doing more to, yeah. to brush up on that. Like if I asked you, could you do you think you could beat anyone in spikeball? It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, absolutely. But let's say you haven't played spikeball for two years. But you do it on and off. Sure, you so get like, rusty. Yeah, you get rusty. So right. am I in perfect shape? No. Right. Have I been... Super on top for the last couple of years? No, but my muscle memory. Why? Why did you kind of stop or quit? Just expenses. Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, it's like a hundred and fifty dollars a month just to go to any studio mm. gym around here. Yeah. Um, also, the other reason why I stopped is I started getting turned off by the mainstream sports aspect of martial arts instead of the traditional lifestyle of martial arts, and that's what I fell in love with when okay. I was a child. Yeah. I love the aspect of discipline, honor, mm -hmm. learning to protect those you love, yeah. using this art as a defensive mechanism and not as an offensive right, mechanism, right. but UFC came out and everyone's like, oh, teach me how to punch, teach me how to do yeah, a let's, guillotine. Let's go kill each yeah. other. Right? And I was just super turned off. So that's probably another reason why I'm not like weighing yeah. into it, just because we've kind of lost the old art. Right. And that was the thing I fell in love with. So tell me, like, having been so submerged in that world for so long and having been recently submerged in this like spike ball world how would you compare not the sports but the communities because you know i don't know anything about the martial arts community i'm sure it varies greatly from one place to another from one um like you know whether it's kickboxing or judo or whatever yeah. but um how would you compare the the communities that's a great question i was my my first instinct is to say i think all communities just where people have a common interest, mm -hmm. spike ball, volleyball, right. martial arts, they tend to have a solid brotherhood, right? Mm -hmm. But I think but it's but some are so different like like I grew up playing basketball and I never considered basketball like a community. Mm -hmm. I considered like my team. Yeah. a community, right? Um, and granted I played, you know, before I played more competitively like pre-social media. And so you weren't really homies with the dudes you were playing against. Yeah. You'd go to camps and you'd meet other dudes, but you'd never see them again. And so there wasn't a huge sense of community. There was a, you know, that small community within your team, your coaches, um, you know, maybe your, your teammates, parents, your, you know, coaches, kids, that little insular community. But I never felt this huge communal mm. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I, I've never felt a more tightly knit community than mm -hmm. the spike ball community and i think the reason why is that unlike martial arts or basketball martial arts and basketball have been around for a long time yeah and so now you have these people who have not only grown up doing the sport mm -hmm. they their parents and their parents parents have done it and so there's a sense of pride that yeah. comes with i this is my identity but with spike ball none of us really grew up on it because yeah. it's so new I, right now i'm talking i'm sitting i'm sitting in front of you I don't want to say anything controversial, but the number five, <laughs> right? The number five best player in the world, arguably, 
here we are having conversation like there's nothing different between us. Right. But if I was talking to another martial artist who's grown up doing martial arts his uh-huh. whole life and his pre- dad, there would be a wall, an egotistical wall where you mm-hmm. can really... And I think that's what is uh, fortunately lacking in the spikeball community. There are no walls and e- there might be some egos. Everyone has ego. Sure. But right, but like... Spikeball hasn't been around long enough to mm-hmm. allow that to be like, oh, you're you you're a noob. Oh, well, you're not as cool as me. The fact is, is everyone knows Spikeball is brand new, so everyone is so welcoming and saying, I'm new, you're new, and this is a new community. Let's do everything we can to build this together. Yeah. That 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 doesn't happen in martial arts. Right. That doesn't happen in basketball. Right. Yeah, and I think the other thing is just the format of like how they do tournaments. You have like you have the beginners and the pros at the same tournament. Yeah. And so you get that intermingling that you don't get with other sports. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, yeah, like you said, because people haven't been growing up and doing it for years, there's no, like, hazing the new kids, yeah. you know, the freshmen that suck, because everybody sucked six months ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, or at the most two or three years ago. And so absolutely, um, I think everybody, everybody can – much more easily relate to these new guys that are coming out and don't understand the game, don't understand how to be competitive yet. Um, whereas, yeah, if you're 25 and you've been playing basketball since you were six, like you learned the basics by the time you were 12. Yep. And if you meet a 25 year old that sucks at basketball, you're like, dude, get out of here, get out of the gym. Exactly. <laughs> no one likes you. You're, right. you're like you said, like you said, you like basketball, but you're kind of like, I don't, you know, it's kind of too late. Yeah. You know, exactly. like, um, I always tell people like, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I played basketball cause I love it. And it's not, it's a really hard sport to pick up late because there's so many skills involved. Like you can't just, rely on your athleticism mm-hmm. or your height, you know, unless you're seven, two, then it's, it's easier to learn. Yeah. Right. But, you know, I have some really athletic buddies that played like college football and stuff and they'll come play basketball and they're trash. Yeah. Cause you just, there's just too, there's too many skills in it. Yeah. Basketball has been around long enough where it has been dissected mm-hmm. to scientifically, right. To the, like almost to the atom level saying, if you shoot this way, it's not going to work. You, they know every single fundamental thing that's going to change a person's game. Yeah. So even if you have someone that's not athletic, they become a master at basketball because yeah. it's been around long enough that they have master teachers. Right. Spikeball, you're the master teacher, and you've been playing spikeball for, what, four years? Yeah. Right? And so it just goes to show that there isn't a history where we can make that happen right now because spikeball is so new that we can't have prodigies coming in because they've been taught the most fundamental things that were learned from people hundreds of years, you know, a hundred years ago. Cause basketball has been around for almost a hundred years. Right, right. Right. So that's the other difference is like over a hundred years, over a hundred yeah. years. <laughs> my guy, my guy. So that's like, I just went to St. George for the mm-hmm. tournament, Met, played a wonderful couple. Well, they're not a couple partners, uh, Kara and James. And there are these guys that just decided to play together. They're from California. They mm-hmm. came up to this, to hang out, and they're like, oh, they're having a tournament. They're in advance. I'm in advance. I'm playing with Devin. We've never met them. After the game, we've become best friends. Mm-hmm. We actually went to go you know, to a fun festival, played mini golf, hung out until 5 a.m. playing board games. Next day, we went to Angel's Landing in Zion, hung mm-hmm. out the rest of the day, the whole day on Sunday. Yeah. And it's like that just doesn't happen in other communities because there is no, 
oh, this is my thing, mm -hmm. and I know you're not that great, and we're just not in the same community. Our community is not tied because of our athleticism or exposure to spike ball. What ties us together is the fact that we just love spike ball and we find it interesting. Yeah. And so we can't we can't have that barrier because spike ball just hasn't been around long enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really cool, and I think the other thing that makes it easier to like remain to to be so friendly with these these other players is it's kind of like tennis where it's like there's not a lot of physical like we're not really like touching each other mm -hmm. right you know every once in a while you bump into another player but for the most part it's a non-contact sport and so it's easier to like have like there's not much aggression in it you know it's not like football or even basketball where you're pounding against each other um so even if you like disagree with some calls or don't really love something about the other player it doesn't usually get heated yeah. because it's not um, a contact sport. And so I think it's easy to maintain kind of that level of camaraderie. Yeah. Whereas it, it's crazy. I always tell people like, dude, I'm a different person when I play basketball. <laughs> like I become a savage and it's because it's so contact heavy and it's, you know, there's more trash talking, it's more physical. And in spike ball, like I can get pretty serious, but when the game's over, I'm, I'm homies with everyone. Yeah, you know. But in basketball, the game's over. I'll slap your hand, but I'm I'm not your homie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. And and honestly, though, spike ball has helped me with basketball to be. Not not the not to take the game less serious because I think the game is serious for me, but to look at it through a different lens and see like I don't. It doesn't make me a better basketball player to hate this person. Yeah. Right. It doesn't yeah. make me a better basketball player to be pissed for days after I lose a game. You know, I can still be highly competitive and not be a psychopath. Yeah. You have that hindsight perspective that you wouldn't have playing basketball. Right. So, um, I think that's fantastic. Well, I promised people we wouldn't talk about spike ball the yeah. whole time. So let me ask you this um, just changing subjects. You. It's kind of wild to me to date somebody for two years and break up. It's kind of wild. Um, especially in our culture, I feel like in the LDS culture, people people get married quickly and they usually don't date for a very long time, right? Because we believe and try to not have premarital sex and so it doesn't make sense to date for a really long time because you're trying to abstain from that, right? Absolutely. So just yeah. in our community... It doesn't happen a lot. Usually people get married within like a year, right? So tell me first of all, and you don't have to get too personal, but tell me why you guys broke up, why things why things couldn't go the distance. I, I actually, uh, I told you this originally over text, I think. Or no, we were talking on the phone. The number one reason why we broke up, third... Of course, there's probably 25 reasons. Yeah, there's a million little reasons, right? So right? That she and I can both come up with on mm -hmm. the spot. Yeah. But and by the way, I met her and she's a sweetheart. Yes, she is perfect. She yeah. is the most lovely person I've ever met yeah. to this day. The number one reason why it didn't work out or we're in the stage that we are right now mm -hmm. is because of pornography. Mm -hmm. And there's no other way going around it. Yeah. And so since I was... 11 years old 
Okay, I was 11 years old. I got my hands on a uh, a PS2, no, a PSP. Do you know what PSP is? No. PlayStation Portables. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I got my hands on a PSP from my buddy, uh-huh. and he's he was slowed, right, Alpine. He's like, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. You want it? Sure. And uh, I just found out how to get to the internet, and I got curious, mm-hmm. and that was my first time that I was ever exposed. So you to could, like, thing. surf the web on those yeah, little things? Yeah. Okay. It's crazy to think about this. Yeah, yeah. I was 11 years old, so this is 14 years ago. Yeah. Insane. Right? When I was 11, I was rocking a Game Boy. <laughs> Original Game Boy <laughs> with that screen that's, like, kind of green, you know? The Are you talking about the... Uh, you, okay, you know those? Have you ever seen... You've probably just seen pictures of those oh, old yes, Game Boys. The, and then when you flip it on, it, it, like, loads all the black pixels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> what I was working with. There's You're not going to find naked ladies on that. <laughs> Game Boy Color. Just, uh, Maybe the, the worst thing you'll get is like if you're playing like Mortal Kombat and you got like a girl fighting in like some <laughs> like weird bikini sort of thing. Just serving on a Game yeah. Boy Advance. Yeah. Okay, so anyways, you got introduced to the Dark Arts yep. from the PSP. 11 years old. And that very night, mm-hmm. I took that PSP. I was just shaking. I was distraught. I was scared. Mm-hmm. I felt evil. And I just took that PSP, this in the middle of the night, probably 2 a.m., go outside, and I smashed the PSP oh, wow. on, the, on the asphalt. Just yeah. smashed it over and over and over again and threw it in the, in the rubbish, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember the next day, I just asked to hang out with some friends. I just felt awful. Didn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. No one, I don't think anyone's actually heard the story now. Yeah, good. This is, uh, <laughs> this is it, guys. This, this, is, is, this is exclusive. This is the inside scoop. And so... I remember I remember that day so vividly. But then about a year later from my dojo, mm-hmm. there was a competition to see who can get the most likes on Facebook doing something representing Bushibon, which was the name of the dojo. Yeah. And I won. Terrible name. Yeah. <laughs> Bushy Bottom? Bush, bu- <laughs> <laughs> That's what I heard. Bushy <laughs> Bushibon. Oh, it's like some <laughs> Japanese word. Bushy bot, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I actually forgot the, what it meant, but yeah. It's it probably means bushy bot. Yeah, it probably does. Okay. And so I uh, I uh, decided to get on top of my roof, mm-hmm. poke I was doing break, I was break dancing at the time too. Mm-hmm. I was doing like a stall, repping the gear. Yeah. And I got the most likes, so I won an iPod Touch. Okay. And then that's when my, that's, that's when the beginning of the end started. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so... I had that iPod Touch, and then I, smartphones starting to come out. And mm-hmm. My parents they got me a smartphone, and, and I was I was I was hooked until I left on my mission. And I even lied on my interview, yeah. right, to go on a mission. They're like, "Hey, this is that you good?" I was like, "Yeah," because yeah. I was terrified. Right. And just just for people who don't understand, when you're going to serve an LDS mission, um, it's not like they they make you, but they want you to be at a certain level of righteousness or chastity Mm -hmm. or whatever right because they don't want to send out somebody that's going to really struggle out there it's not that um if you don't do this you're banished and you can't serve it's that they want kind of the best of the best to go out right so that's exactly what happened i wanted to go on a mission yeah since i was five years old that Mm -hmm. was my dream yeah and so I, I was going no matter what. Yeah. So I lied on my interview with the bishop. I lied on my interview with the stake president, mm-hmm. the hierarchy, and I got my mission call, Thailand, Bangkok. Yeah. Dream come true. Like mm-hmm. I literally couldn't ask for a better mission. But I was I got that mission call in the beginning of August, and I was to report to the MTC December 18th. Mm-hmm. So I had five months. 
yeah. to contemplate right. and tell my, ask myself, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. Because at that time was the big was uh was when the age changed. Okay. That was literally the for, I was on the forefront of the age change, so everyone was just swarming mm-hmm. the mission, the MTC. It was and it I, was nineteen to eighteen. Yeah. It, no, nineteen to eighteen. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, eighteen. <laughs> I thought <laughs> yeah. you said eighteen to nineteen. Right, right. I'm like, oh, when you smoking, dude? Yeah. Like, give me some of that. Anyway, um, and so everyone was swarming the MTC, but I heard tons of my buddies were already coming back early from the mission, mm. and I was terrified. I was like, yeah. why are these homies coming back early? Yeah. I was like. Back then, that was like the number one disgrace, right? This right. was t- pornography is right. Two thousand. This is two thousand thirteen, mm-hmm. by the way. Still so unknown. It was mm-hmm. taboo. People right. didn't know how to talk about it, and so I was terrified. But I, I, I actually was uh, working at My Tire Guys, which was a local shop that my brother in law's father owned, and I was a little tire mechanic trying mm-hmm. to save up for my mission, ready to go on my mission. And I remember talking to another return missionary, and he's, I was like, hey how did you know you wouldn't be sent home? He's like, I just told everything. I did I did not hide one ill feeling from my bishop and from my sick president. Yeah. And then he's like, and once they, once I gave everything to them, I knew there was nothing for me to hide. Mm-hmm. So I had no guilt on my mission. Yeah. And I was like, crap, I'm screwed. Right. <laughs> yeah. So after lots of praying and um, talking to people I love, I finally got myself to talk to my bishop again. And he was like, oh, that's new information. I right. I need to look into this. Yeah, I need to send this up the ladder. Yeah. Yeah. And so a week and a half before I was going to report to the MTC, my bishop texted me and he said, hey, come outside to the front. Uh, to the front. I need to talk to you. And uh, long story short, he said, I think, you know, our Father in Heaven or God wants you to serve. Mm-hmm. You're going you're gonna to go serve. Yeah. So um, I had issues on my mission. Just because you go on a mission doesn't disappear. I still struggled with yeah. all that stuff on the mission. And then came back and I was like, I need help. So I confessed. I told my parents right away because they still had no idea, mm-hmm. right? Before my mission or during my mission, they didn't yeah. know I struggled. It wasn't until I was 18 years old, 20 years old, that they found out that yeah. I had an issue with pornography. Yeah. And I told them, I was like, this is the reality. They're like, we're cutting the Wi-Fi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, actually, the rule... Family rule is, as soon as I was back from my mission, I got kicked out. I had to live on my own. Okay. So I've, I've lived on my own since since, uh, since my mission. Right. And so I told my parents, so I would have the support, and I would have their love. And, and some, some accountability. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And so ever since then, it's been just a roller coaster. Yeah. And uh, before I got into my relationship with that girl, I told her, hey, I have an issue. Mm-hmm. And I would have ups and downs. Do you and, think she, when you said that, kind of understood how serious it was? Was she kind of naive about it? What was her understanding of Definitely, it? Definitely, I would say she was more naive about okay. it. She had good hopes. Right? Yeah. She, she was would hopeful. you say most girls are naive about yeah, it? Yeah, I would say so. Unless they've read about it. read, And so that's why I know she was naive about it. Because I introduced her to a book called He Restoreth My Soul. Mm-hmm. Written by a member who was an MD and a, neuro, a neuroscientist. Yeah. And he goes into big detail. And that's when she realized, oh, this is what... I'm struggling with. Right, right. And so she I introduced her to that book and we're doing fine, but in the end it just it was tearing me apart mm-hmm. from the inside out. Yeah. And naturally when one in a in a in a interdependent relationship is struggling, it's just gonna fall apart. And yeah. so that was the number one reason. There are lots of other reasons, but um yeah, pornography is it's a plague. Yeah. It's a disease. It's it's the most pervasive thing I've I've come to encounter yet. 
Yeah. And uh, I don't think we talk about it enough to this day. Like, we've made leagues, right? We have made a huge leap in our culture here in the church right. to talk about it and to understand if a man has an, an addiction to pornographer or even a woman, mm-hmm. it's not taboo. They're, they're not disgusting. Yeah. They're not unworthy. Right. They're just being broadsided by Satan. <laughs> well, they're just, they're just struggling with one thing, yeah. but it's, it's one of those things where if you're struggling with alcohol, it's usually a little more like out in the open. Yeah. Right. Usually it's hard to keep that very secret. Mm-hmm. You know, you kept this secret for nine plus years yeah. and you probably could have kept it a secret until now. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. It's usually just when you're alone in your room. Yeah. Right. No, no one would ever know. Right. And so that's why I think it's so taboo is because it's, it's, it feels like a shameful act and it feels like because it's easy to keep secret, you just have this dark secret in you for years and that kind of eats at your soul. Yeah. Um, what would you say, and you know, I don't want to make this episode a completely like moral unpacking of pornography, but I want to, I want to ask what you, you know, cause addictions are very similar across the board, right? They do similar things to you, whether you're addicted to coffee or you're addicted to heroin or you're addicted to pornography or you're addicted to hentai, yeah. or, you know, um, but what what ultimately does the addiction do you feel do to your brain? Um, so studies have shown. Look at me mm-hmm. throwing out that terminology. I sound yeah. like an expert expert now. You're a pre doctor though, right? <laughs> That's okay. the plan. That's yeah. the plan. So studies have shown that pornography actually is as addictive as heroin Mm -hmm. and that how do you quantify that so what they do is they look at the neurons Mm -hmm. and the actual physical uh condition of the brain okay and they see how much of it like how much of the hindbrain has become dependent on you know these that stimulus that come from pornography or Mm -hmm. heroin right and they measure how much of it needs in order to function properly right mm-hmm. and so they have all these different measurements and then again I'm not and, an I, and I think and I'll let you come right back but I think people their counter argument to that just to play devil's advocate is you know with heroin and hard drugs and stuff I think the main difference is your withdrawals are so physical yeah right yeah, yeah, you know yeah, when you yeah. go off heroin you're very physically sick um, you know there's a lot of impairments to your body and your mind obviously and i think if you you know quit pornography cold turkey um you might be going through kind of this inner turmoil this own hell but it's it's not necessarily as physical uh yeah i think it depends on the biological uh dna as well as of of each individual sure some people they have been told that they start they break out in sweat. Really? They start going, they have maniac episodes. Mm-hmm. So people are different, right? Sure. But uh, the county argument to that argument as well is that, like, unlike cocaine, heroin, uh, nicotine, those are things that you actually have to get up, go outside, mm-hmm. get in the car, purchase, go back home, yeah. open it up, put it in your mouth or inject it, and then that's when you've had a relapse. Or, right. right. 
But with pornography, it can just be as simple as one thought. Right. And all of a sudden, you get that dosage. Yeah. And the brain starts depending on that, right? right. And so... Well, and even if, even if you've gotten to a point where you're controlling your thoughts very well, your, your heroin, so to speak, is right here yep. in, in your phone yep. if you want access. Instant access. You know? yep. And I know, you know I, have, I have some buddies that have struggled with it, and they've told me you know, some of their stories. And a lot of times I've had buddies that will put on you know, these sort of like internet kind of parental guides or whatever so they can't go to certain websites, but they're like, at the end of the day, like I can disarm them. I can dismantle them or or whatever. And so, and then I've had, you know, those same buddies go to the extreme and say, okay, well I'm going to like, I had a buddy who literally would lock his phone in his locker at school at night and would go back the next day and get it because he didn't trust himself. But then he's like, but one night I, um, I was, I was out of my mind. I was manic and I was going to do whatever it took, but I promised myself I wouldn't go to that locker. And he's like, and I knew the school was closed, so I couldn't. So I went and bought a tablet and, and and returned it the next day and, and relapsed or whatever. And so (laughs) it's tough because I actually read this book about, um, about kind of, it was, it was a lot about like AI and robots and the future of technology and all these kind of weird things. But they talked a lot about how phones have literally become like an extra appendage mm-hmm. because yep. if they're not in our hand, they're in our pocket. Yep. And if they're not in our pocket, they're in our purse or our backpack. They're just, they're always honest. They're always a part of us. And that's got to be so crippling for someone who struggles with that addiction because even if they're, they're past it, like, you know, can you imagine a, an ex-junkie who just always has a little bit of heroin in their wallet? Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, and back in the day, I remember the, the argument was get a Nokia. Yeah, get a flip phone. Get a flip phone. Yeah. Right? And it was like, it's as simple as that. Just, just understand that you don't have the privilege to have this technology like everyone else does. Mm-hmm. That was 10 years ago. Now living without a phone, period. If you didn't have a phone, you almost can't have a life. With, right. Right? Because just society today is it's just a complete circle around technology. Yeah. And so that's not even like a recommendation from therapists anymore. They don't say get rid of your phone or like get an Nokia. That's that's not even a question in the matter anymore. Yeah. It's like you're going to have the phone. you got to conquer the beast first. Yeah. Right. So, and I like what you're saying. Like, in the end, you can have all these locks and these parent guardian programs and you can put it in a locker or you know give it to your wife or your significant other but in the end the ultimate control in life is self-control right and so i i always i i'm no expert but i just know that in the end it's always gonna be up to you right right and do whatever it takes right to like build up to that point yeah but in the end it doesn't matter you can try to isolate yourself and just become you know, live in a box, but mm-hmm. in the end, you're going to have to come out one day and a phone's going to be somewhere. You can buy a laptop somewhere you right. can find someone else's phone and access it within seconds right. and relapse. And so in the end, it's the name of the game is it's up to you. And it's, and that's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying to think about, to yeah. think about that. So let me ask you right now, um, and you don't have to give me all the details, but what are you doing right now to, 
to move forward and progress in your uh, in your recovery? So the number one thing is I'm trying to develop two new beliefs, mm-hmm. a new paradigm. Number one, my new paradigm is that I'm trying to develop is pornography is poison. Mm-hmm. It's evil. It's black and white, right? There is no gray. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was recommended this by my therapist, not a therapist, but a counselor. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, and he's a member of the church. And in the church, we don't believe in drinking alcohol or, you know, using su- addictive substance, mm-hmm. su- substances, right? And he said, would you ever be tempted of smoking a cigarette? Cigarette? I said, yeah. no, never. Right. If someone came up to you and offered you alcohol, would you drink it? I said, never. Why? Because in my mind, my paradigm is that's evil. Right. That's poison yeah you decided at some point you'll just never ever ever touch it exactly you know and so this is a this is a, like a, a theory that he introduced to me that i never thought of when i was younger because mm-hmm. when you're a kid and growing up as a, a human being that has sexual drive that we're meant to create right or we have procreation abilities you're always growing up thinking okay the opposite sex is okay right seeing someone in nude is natural right? Sex is natural. And so there was never that divide mm-hmm. of black and white. It just kind of always was like, sex is good. It's part of life. It's, it's God's gift. Mm-hmm. But there was never a, oh, but by the way, there's a certain point where it's just black and white. Yeah. Not at least when I was growing up, I was never taught with that type of, that type of paradigm. And so yeah. that's like the number one I think is when I'm thinking, okay, do I want to relapse? Do I want to take part in this? I ask my my I I match it with the same ideas. If I was about to be offered a cigarette, would I take it? Mm-hmm. No, easy. Yeah. And so that's one thing that I'm doing now, and that's been helpful. Yeah. So anyone out there struggling with, you know, pornography addiction, give that a shot. It's been helpful for me. Just make the decision that pornography is as evil as the most evil thing you can think right. of. And and here's the thing: even if like even if you don't share our beliefs and you don't think it's inherently evil, but you can tell it's kind of effing up your life, yep. right? Because there's plenty of things that maybe aren't inherently evil that can eff up your life, yep. you know, like overeating, you know, there's, there's nothing evil about food, yeah, absolutely. right? But there's, there's gluttony and there's an addiction to food. Heart disease. And, right. And there's lots of problems associated with that. And so you can take these same principles with anything you're struggling with and it doesn't have to be a hardcore addiction but if you can if you can view it as you know and you don't have to use the word evil yeah, right no. but like say you're struggling with like laziness or just like being you know sleeping in or or whatever you could view it as okay if i'm in bed past 10:30 or 11 or 12 or whatever it is that's not okay for me. Yeah. Like, I can't allow it to happen. And even if I had a restless night, I had insomnia, or, and I had two hours of sleep, I'm going to get up by this hour, right? If you if you can kind of make these, these delineations and say, this is okay and this is not okay, because I, I think you get in trouble when you have all this gray area in your life. Um, and I definitely, I feel like for myself, it's hard. I have a lot of gray area in a lot of things, but... If you're like, well, it's okay. If if you're struggling with something, that's when you can't really have gray area. Yeah. Right. Like, 
I, I understand I don't have super hard opinions about alcohol. Um, I myself don't drink it and don't believe in its consumption, but I understand there's millions of people that casually have a beer now and then, have some wine, and they're fine. No effect. And yeah. and their religious beliefs don't, you know, that there's no there's no struggle there, yeah. so it's fine for them. But if you're struggling with an alcohol addiction, you have to delineate and say, I can't, I probably can't have a glass of wine ever again. Yeah. You know, and that's what they teach in AA programs mm-hmm. and NA and SA programs. It's like if you decide or realize you have that addiction, the gray area is gone. Yeah. Right. You exactly. don't have that luxury. Like like you said, you don't have that luxury to have that technology in your life. Absolutely. You know? I, I went to I went to a sex addiction recovery meeting with a friend who was struggling and I'd never been to one and it was kinda it was kinda crazy. We were in um we were out of state and we were like in the hood and and we just he wanted to go to one and I was like, All right, let's roll. Cool. <laughs> and um and we go and it was it was crazy the things I heard people say just because I wasn't used to the language of it. Yeah. But this guy, like he was introducing himself and he's like, Yeah, I'm a sexaholic and and whatnot and he said and I, I had a hard time not laughing because I thought it was funny the way he said it. Mm-hmm. But he's like, um, my name's whatever. Um, I actually lost custody of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what judge took this guy's eyes? <laughs> this guy's walking around just like, nope, <laughs> nope, I can't look at anything. But um, he had basically, you know, come to the own self-assessment that he, whatever, couldn't trust his eyes mm-hmm. or whatever. And I, th- I thought that was... That was amusing, but it was cool that he could admit that yeah, accountability and and realize that, you know, for a time being, he didn't he didn't have that luxury to just look wherever he wanted. Yeah, you know, and it's it'd be so easy for him to say like, well, dude, they're freaking my eyes. I'm in a free country. Mm-hmm. I have my my autonomous. I have my autonomy. I'll look wherever I want. Mm-hmm. You know. But he was like, no, I can't look wherever I want or I'm going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. It's, and then it doesn't have to be right or bad, good or evil. It's, mm-hmm. Is this thing serving me? Right. right? Is it serving me for the better? Mm-hmm. Is it giving me what I want in life? Yeah. And so if it's pornography, if mm-hmm. you don't think it's evil, but next thing you know, a lot of people, they tend to have erection, erection dysfunction, right? They can't have sex. Yeah. Right? It's like... Well, maybe that's a good enough reason for right. you to stop right. or the fact that there are, you know, you can't stay faithful because yeah. you're always looking for something new mm-hmm. and you want a relationship. You want a permanent relationship. Right. That's your character. Yeah. Yeah. And, Take the moralism out of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it making you a better person? Probably not. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't want to sit here and preach, you know, our, our doctrine to people. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it goes further than that and yeah. past that. Absolutely. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something wildly interesting and thought-provoking. Um, got my roommate laughing upstairs to himself. Um, oh, so on the tip of my tongue, I was going to ask, um, what what would be your advice to to a to a girl that is very unfamiliar with the world of pornography. Um, 
you know, it's it, it's not it's not that they never do, but just statistically, women don't struggle with it as much, mm-hmm. right? Correct. It's much more ubiquitous in the man world, and just the way we're wired, we're more susceptible to it. Um, and I know a lot of girls that just don't realize, you know, they hear it talked about as a plague and this this thing that's everywhere, but I don't think they realize that you don't really meet a guy that hasn't viewed it. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't really exist. That's right. <laughs> you know, and if they do, they're either a saint and live in a steeple mm-hmm. or they've lived on an island where there's no internet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. You know, there it just doesn't really happen. Um and I'm not I'm not here trying to out every man as yeah. a pervert. No, 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 I'm just saying the way our minds work when we see it, the way we react to it, how visual we are, there's and and the struggle of it is a spectrum. There's people that do very well at not struggling with it. You know, they've seen it once or twice. They saw accidentally saw something in a bad movie. They see a weird billboard in Europe or yeah. something and they're they're fine and they move on. And they can kind of compartmentalize as, oh, that was a bad thing. Don't want to revisit it. And other people really struggle and struggle and struggle. And then some people kind of struggle from time to time. And then they're good for a really long time. And then they're back at it. And some people struggle intensely their entire life, right? Mm -hmm. It's a wild spectrum, just like anything else. What would you say to women that, um, like say a girl is dating a guy and she finds out he has this addiction, but it's so... it just is so, like, blindsiding to her. Mm-hmm. What would you say to a girl like that? That's rough. And I think that's that's my goal as an individual is to help women be in a position where they don't get blindsided, mm-hmm. right? But if it's already too late, we're already in a relationship. She's already... Would you, would you advise a girl to ask a guy about it? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. How, how early? When do you do that? First, it can be the first date mm-hmm. because the truth of the matter is, it's like you said, there have been studies where it's, it's gotten to the point where any boy that's around the age of 11 or 12 has already been, it's about almost 100% of all men, mm-hmm. boys, have been exposed to pornography. Right. And then of that almost 100%, it's like 90, 95 have an addiction problem or a compulsive issue with it, right? Mm-hmm. So with that statistics, again, it's not saying... Oh, all all men are not worthy, or they're not going to be good guys, or they they're already a lost cause, mm-hmm. right? You wouldn't say, "Hey, just because you woke up late today, you're not you're not a good person." It's mm-hmm. just like again, it's just another struggle, yeah. right? So, again, don't don't dismiss men for that. But now with the fact that if you are on a date and you're interested in creating a trust a bond with this person, you want to get to know them, you essentially want to build a life with them, a relationship with them. The way they react, and how they say, if they, and how they, how they respond to a question like, "Do you struggle with pornography?" First of all, if they're telling the truth or not, you can never know. That's that's one thing. But if they do tell you the truth, and how they talk about it is really revealing. Mm-hmm. To say, "Yeah, I have a pornography issue. It's it's whatever. Like, no problem." Then that's a red flag, mm-hmm. because the truth about pornography is it takes a, an overwhelming amount of accountability and ownership to overcome. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, yeah, like no one, people don't struggle with it. And that I'm not saying that there are people who have no issue and that they, 
they can come over this with no problem. I'm just saying that it is something that is always there 24 seven. And so if the way that they respond is huge. And so they say, yeah, I have an issue. And I'm just like, Oh, it's whatever. I would ask more questions, get in a deeper position. But if that person says, yes, I have an issue and it's something that I've been really trying to work on. Mm -hmm. Right. Then I would say that person is just as worthy or ready to, build a relationship with any other person that never had a pornography, has never been to expose right, pornography, right. right? Because you can see that they're willing to take ownership, mm-hmm. just like with anything in life. Right. Pornography is no different than anything that in life with finances, with, <laughs> with going to school, with your right. career. If they're willing to take ownership in pornography, then I'm sure, sure as heck that they're going to be, you can trust them to be honest about be honest everything. About it, anything, yeah. Yeah, because that's probably like, one of, if not the most shameful, like, yeah. part of them. And so, yeah, they're going to be, if they can be vulnerable and open about that, they'll probably be vulnerable and open about everything, yeah. right? Um, so she never asked me. So yeah. I told her on, like, the third date, this girl, right? Mm-hmm. I told her on the third date, I said, hey, if we're going to keep show, uh, investing in each other, I want you to know that I have an issue with pornography, mm-hmm. and it's a serious problem. Um, with that being said, I have every intent to overcome and to keep fighting, right? right? And so... I think that sentence, not that you're wrong in that, I think that's so overwhelming for a young girl to hear that hasn't been exposed and doesn't understand how pervasive it is. Um, It's it's funny. I was was talking to this girl the other day and she was telling me um, about some struggles she was having with her boyfriend and she was saying like... um, he was, he was telling her that they were talking about going to some like musical festival, like Burning Man or something. And he was saying how he didn't super want to go because, you know, there's so many like half-dressed women there Mm -hmm. and it was hard for him to not like look at them. Yeah. And she took that so personally Mm -hmm. and was hurt because she felt like, well, if he loved me, why would he want to look at these other girls? And I tried to explain it to him, even though I know nothing about this guy, and he may have a problem with pornography, he may have zero problem with it, but I know that he's a human man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I explained to her, this, like, I know you don't want to hear this, but this has nothing to do with you. Like, That's completely right. This, this is his struggle and it's man's struggle to, like just to overcome that lust and to overcome. And I was like, I was like, even me, I feel like I've got a pretty good hold on my, my like temptations and my kind of carnal desires. Mm -hmm. But I was like, I will always notice a beautiful woman. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even if I'm the most happiest married, whatever, and I'll try to not gawk and ogle. Yeah. But I will always notice a beautiful woman and that's just the way I'm wired. Yeah, that's right? like saying you see a bull, you see a roasted chicken, and you have, and you're hungry. Mm-hmm. It would be really ridiculous to say that doesn't look appetizing. Right. That's a natural part of our human. And so to say, oh, that woman doesn't look appetizing. To say that she's not attractive would mm-hmm. be a lie. Right. Because that is in our creation right. <laughs> as, as our natural being right. is to notice those things because but it doesn't make whoever we're with any less yes, attractive less attractive absolutely right? yeah um but i think girls have do a better job at 
when they're in love and they're with somebody at getting kind of tunnel vision yeah. and just seeing that one person and not noticing attractive guys. Not that they don't, but I think guys, we just have a radar. We, we can, we can spot a hot girl from 10 miles away. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll get off a plane. I'll be like, I, I, I can, I know there's a hot girl close. <laughs> You're like, let me wait 10 you know, seconds. I can, for... Yeah. I can smell some bed, bath and beyond. <laughs> Something I don't know, some Febreze, some some coconutty, something you know. Yeah. And um, and I just think girls are a little more evolved in in that area. I I don't know if that's the right word, but I tried to explain. And this is a young girl. I think she's uh, nineteen or twenty. And I was like, (laughs) I told her I was like, first of all, I would ask your guy if he struggles with pornography. I was like, not because this and this mean he definitely is. I'm just saying he might. And what it sounds like is you guys are having communication issues Mm -hmm. because you've been dating for like two years and this is the first time he's ever mentioned something like this and you're taken aback and blown away and hurt. And I was like, he's always been looking at cute girls. Yeah. And he always will. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if he's staring at them and not looking away, then we have a bigger problem. But I was like, noticing them is not really an issue. Yeah. Um, and she still, it wasn't really getting through to her, but I was just trying to explain, like, that's the difference between men and women. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, there's a, a leader that I admire, and uh, he, you know him, Bednar. Mm-hmm. He was giving an example that he was on an airport. He was in, uh, getting off a plane, and as they came out of the airport, there was a big mural, just a big, huge drawing of a, of a naked woman. Mm-hmm. And he noticed it. But then he looked away. Yeah. And he would say, was, was it a sin that I noticed that there was a pornography, you know, a pornographic image, mm-hmm. and then I noticed it? Or, or, or is the actual sin in the fact that I notice it and I choose to dwell on it and to, to become consumed by it mm-hmm. and to, to ha- have control over my will as opposed to my will to have control over it? And that's what's happening with men every second of the day. You have cleavage, you have immodesty, you have all this stuff, and we notice it. But it's our choice if we're just going to dwell on it mm-hmm. and be like, oh, that's something I desire. That's Then that shows infidelity. That shows that you're not faithful. But to notice it, mm-hmm. what, to, what to reject human, you know, our nature as men, right? right? right. And so I would, I would advise that to any woman to realize that if a guy notices it, then no problem. Because just like a girl will notice an attractive man, right? Right doesn't mean that you love him and that you're going to break your relationship up and right. go after him. It just means you noticed it. Right. You're, you're still, it's all about the commitment. Yeah. That's that, that is the foundation of any relationship. It isn't about attractiveness. It isn't about anything. It's about, I'm committed to you. It doesn't matter if Beyonce walks in front of me, you're still the one that I choose to give my life to. Right. And that's, that's what women should be concerned about. And the other thing is like, say, Anyone, on, not women, anyone should right. be concerned well, about. But say on that extreme like level, say you're like in a happy relationship and Beyonce does walk in the room. Like I think you can fairly like admire her beauty without like lusting after her. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Because I'll do the same thing with guys. I'll see a good looking guy and I definitely don't lust after him because yeah. I have no desire to be intimate or physical with a guy, but I'll be like, oh, that's a good looking dude. And yeah. I'll like be like, Oh, he's got like 
some beefy arms or he's got a nice six pack he's got a nice calf he's got <laughs> he's got maybe like an oddly chiseled you know chin with the and, cheekbones and you know i try not to talk about it too long because then things start to get curious <laughs> but but i don't i don't feel uncomfortable like looking at a guy for 10 seconds and just being like oh wow that's like a a nicely shaped human being mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah and i think that's fine to do with the opposite sex even if you're in a healthy sustained relationship yep. it's just can you draw the line between kind of admiring the beauty and appreciating kind of like god's craftsmanship because yep. god has made some fine specimens mm-hmm. or do you take it a little too far and start to fantasize and imagine you know some dark thoughts yeah exactly and that's that's a question for people to answer themselves but um just like my sister she's married she's been married for 12 years mm -hmm. and ever since day one they always had this funny thing where she thinks justin timberlake is the most attractive man on planet earth yeah and so does her husband he thinks (laughs) who is it alicia keys i think yeah yeah and they'll just talk about how they think they're the most beautiful people in the world, and that's yeah. their celebrity crush. Mm-hmm. No shame in that because you know that the relationship is so strong that it's not about oh I'm being I'm incapable mm-hmm. of my of controlling myself when I'm around. It's like I admire his talent. I think he's beautiful. He's right. a babe. But reality is, I love you. I chose to love you because I do find you attractive. Mm-hmm. I do find you amazing. I do find you competent, and that's enough for me. Yeah. But the the fact that I can just like have a fantasy is the truth is all human beings are capable of fantasizing because that's part of our human nature to learn how to grow and to become and to want yeah but then to put a cap on it that's when it's like yeah i fantasize about justin timberlake but my cap stops with i my husband is my one and only but he knows that i think justin timberlake's a babe right no shame in that right to be fair alicia keys is a babe yes (laughs) dude i saw this i saw this there's this new documentary on Netflix. I can't remember what it's called, but it's like these musicians kind of come and they break down like how a song came to be. They talk about how the lyrics came to them and the oh. whole process. Is that on Hulu um, or Netflix? It's on Netflix. Oh, okay. I forget what it's called. It's really cool. I heard, I there's a, it started with a podcast and they've made kind of a a docu series out of it. But there was one on this song that Alicia Keys did. And I watched it, and I was like, "Dude, I forgot how much of a fox she was." <laughs> she Holy lady. cow! This this ethnically ambiguous princess. Because <laughs> um, I remember thinking she was a babe when she first came out. Because yeah. I was like a teenager. Yeah, of course. And she's just that exotic mm-hmm. exoticness. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's she's keeping it tight after all these years. So I'm pretty yeah. proud of her. Nothing, Alicia, nothing if you're listening. <laughs> We love you and we care about you. Yeah, I um, we can't wait for you to come on the show. Oh, that would be a dream. I'm sure she'll be one of our next guests. And and reassured, we will keep our thoughts in check. Yes, we will be very chaste and very clean. <laughs> um, Alex has already invited himself over here for that episode. <laughs> apparently, I already put it in my calendar. Yeah, so we're good to go. Um, very good. Okay, um, we're going to wrap up. Let me let me ask you one question. I want to kind of I, – I often do this with my guests, and sometimes it makes them awkward and uncomfortable. And, that's um, good, weird. And that's good. Yeah. Um, no, not really awkward. They, mo- they mostly just have been stupefied a few times. But I like to, I like to flip the script and say, okay, if, if suddenly this podcast became yours 
and you only had a few minutes left, what would be one question you would ask me? Uh, my question would be, if you had to define success in one sentence, what would it be? Mm. This might be a run-on sentence. Okay, that's fine. But, but know that the commas will be in the right spots and that it'll be grammatically sound. Okay. Um, let's see. To me, success is... It's so many things, right? Because success is can be kind of a, a checkpoint or a final destination a certain accomplishment or realization. But to me, it's more than that. It's the journey and it's the mindset. Mm. So I think there's, because there's, there's kind of the noun success and then there's the adjective successful. You know, people always talk about what does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to live a successful life and have success? And to me, it doesn't make sense to chalk it up as, if you're wealthy, you're successful. If you're happy, you're successful. Because how do you quantify happiness? Yeah. How do you um, how do you even quantify wealth? Because what what's wealthy to one person isn't wealthy to the next person. Um, so I think to equate successfulness and success to one or two or three things is a mistake, and is a recipe to be unhappy. Because it's easy to be unhappy if you feel like you're unsuccessful, right? I think it comes down to um, living a life of progression and living a life of getting outside of yourself and thinking about and caring about other people um, just as much, if not more than yourself, which is really hard to do. Um, I think that is success kind of embodied and you, you'll never reach a spot where you'll, you can say like, finally, now I'm successful. Now I've, I've reached a level of success. I think it's a lifetime. It's an odyssey. Yep. It's, it's something that you will always be searching for. And it's analogous to like, how do you, how do you be happy? Right. It's, it's a journey. Mm -hmm. It's not just, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'll be happy. If I avoid A, B, and C, I'll be happy. Um, it's it's a lifestyle, and it's it's an attempt. It's an attempt. It's a lifelong attempt, and I think any other way, you're setting yourself up for failure by thinking, okay, if I can just get this job or marry this person or have this much in the bank, or sell this many condos, then I will be successful. Mm -hmm. Because once you reach that point, then what happens? Then what are you searching for? Then what are you chasing? Um, yep. Anytime in life you're chasing a brass ring, I think you're gonna you're gonna fall short, and you're gonna feel unsuccessful. Um, so that. That might have been more than one sentence. <laughs> I might have thrown in some wild semicolons. <laughs> Crazy. Um, some dashes. A um, couple of parentheses. Yeah, but yeah. that's... Yeah, I like parentheticals. But that's... Uh, yeah, that's how I would 
surmise it. So, by your definition, would you say you are currently succeeding in the attempt for a successful life in your in your own life? At times, definitely at times. Um, I was telling a buddy of mine today at lunch. I was like, I my my motivation and my ambition ebbs and flows constantly and mm-hmm. it's frustrating because I wish I could stay motivated and ambitious 24 right. 7 but I just can't yeah I was like but the secret is to not stay down too long yeah. I can't and I can't get down by being down mm-hmm. it it becomes this insidious pattern where you're like oh I've been lazy now I don't feel like doing anything because I've been lazy and I feel like a piece of crap and it's like it's fine to just be like dude today was a wash yeah. I sucked today. I didn't get the things done I wanted to, but that's not going to affect my tomorrow. Um, and it's a hard mindset to have because I feel like most days there are always periods of like energy and motivation. And then there are other little periods where I'm feeling down and self-deprecating mm-hmm. and defeatist. And I, w- I wish I didn't have that. I yeah. wish I was always motivated. And you meet people that you feel like that's how they are. Like they're always motivated. And maybe they're more motivated than you are. And maybe they don't struggle with self-doubt and darkness or depression or anxiety like you might. But you just can't stay down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like when I'm chasing my passions and my endeavors and the things I love the most, then I'm experiencing success in a big way. Um, whether whether I'm failing along the way is really irrelevant. Mm-hmm. To me, the amount of failures I have have nothing to do with my success. If anything, they, they buoy and and kind of propel my success. But, um, yeah, it, it's hard to say, like, clear-cut, black and white, am I successful? Because, like I said, I feel like it's a journey. But right now, there are a lot of things I'm passionate about and care about and want in my life, and I'm pursuing all of them. So Love it. Yeah. Yeah, with, I... Uh... You made me think of two of my two of my favorite quotes I haven't thought about in a long time, and they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, one of them's from Tom Bilyeu. He's an entrepreneur that I that I admire, and he says, "Success is never guaranteed, but but the struggle is." Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, it's saying find joy, find purpose in the struggle, and not in the attempt for any ladder that you're trying to get to any event any yeah right and so it's whatever whatever you're doing is that giving you joy so even if you are in the lows you trying to be a whatever level author or you trying to reach out to how many people whatever those things that give you drive is the struggle that you're going through in each moment giving you that happiness right and so find love in that but then my favorite quote of all time is this a psychologist that I've already forgot her name, but she says, discomfort is the admission to a meaningful life. Mm. It's the cost to admission to a meaningful life. Okay. And so that anytime I'm having just the lowest, most awful days of, you know, the breakup, uh, I'm just uncomfortable with who I am or where I am at, or that I just feel like I'm failing or I'm not, I'm not motivated. I'm not doing what I'm quote unquote supposed to be doing. Mm. Just remember that those feelings of pain, suffering, discomfort is the an- is is literally the answer of me saying, I'm living a life mm-hmm. worth living. Right. 
And if I'm not feeling any resistance, I don't know what that means, but just always remember that only dead people don't have pain. They don't have discomfort. Right. And so just be happy that you are suffering because that means you're alive. Yeah. There's this, there's this lyric by Trevor Hall. Um, one of my favorite musicians, he says, uh, the darkness is all around me, but I'm so glad it found me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a cool way to look at things, I think. Cool. But, um, anyways, Alex, I appreciate you coming on. Um, this was a fun episode. Um, any parting words for the people? Uh, if you want to get good at something, just remember that the six foot four bone man has become a back belt in karate out of pure desire and hard work. So mm-hmm. n- never let anything get you down. Awesome. That's very cool. Um, yeah, check us out. Um, this, uh, this episode will be on YouTube if you want to watch it in lieu of listening to it only. Um, you can just search it on Taylor, just search Taylor Church on YouTube. Hit me up on um, Instagram at TaylorChurch44 or at Of Stone and Clay Podcast if you have any questions, any topics you want me to delve into, any questions you want me to answer, any guests you want me to have. If you want to be on the show, hit me up. If you're semi-interesting, we might be able to have you. Um, but we will bump you for Alicia Keys. Um, that's a guarantee. Day in, day out. <laughs> okay, appreciate it, guys. Um, we'll catch you soon. Love ya.